We are again in John chapter 18 this morning, finishing up uh, the second part of a two-part study that we began last week entitled The Conflict Between Two Kingdoms. Last week we introduced the fact that there are only two kingdoms that a person can be a citizen of. There is the kingdom of light, or what we could call the kingdom of God, and there is the other kingdom. It's the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of the world. Every person is living in one of these two kingdoms, and there is no middle ground. As we will see today, the one who is a citizen of the kingdom of God is the one who has embraced the truth from God. Again, I said we're in chapter 18 of John. We're studying in particular Jesus' trial before the Roman governor, a man named Pilate. And as I noted last week, this trial breaks breaks down into two sections, or to use courtroom type language, Uh, We could say that there are two phases to this trial. We looked at phase one last week that we called Pilate's interaction with the Jews. Today we'll see the second phase of that, Pilate's interaction with Jesus. In that first phase last time, we found that it breaks down into three components we labeled the first one this, a, the cultural necessity, the cultural necessity. We labeled it that because the Jewish leaders, after taking Jesus bound to Pilate's headquarters, would not actually go inside the building. And that was due to a belief that, by the Jews, that entering into a Gentile's house would ceremonially defile them and therefore prohibit them from participating in in Passover that day, which was Friday that year, and then the remaining seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed. The second component I entitled The Veiled Agenda. Pilate had to come outside his headquarters to where the Jews were, and he asked them when he got out there, what are the charges that you're bringing against this man Jesus? That was a very important question by Pilate, because in the Roman court system, that question signaled that Pilate was starting a new trial, and a trial in which he would determine the guilt or innocence of Jesus. The Jews did not like that because they had already determined from their vantage point that Jesus was indeed worthy of execution, but it was for theological reasons that they came to that conclusion. Because Jesus had claimed that he was the promised, long-awaited Messiah, and he had claimed that he was the Son of God. However, those theological reasons would not stand up in a Roman court of law. Those theological concerns would not sway Pilate, in any sense, to sentence Jesus to death. Yet, that's the only reason that the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate, their whole agenda was simply to use Pilate to make their belief in execution of Jesus, to make that execution official. In other words, they needed Pilate to confirm the execution of Jesus because at that time in history, the Jews were not allowed to execute anyone. But it wasn't the Jews, really, that were in control of that whole situation. 
It wasn't even Pilate who was in control of the situation. God himself was orchestrating everything that happened. All the previous trials on the Jewish side of things, the trial before Annas, the trial before Caiaphas, the reconvening of the Sanhedrin where they made their uh, verdict uh, confirmed on their end, that was all orchestrated by God, as well as the need to have the Romans to sign off on the execution at that time in history. God had orchestrated all of that. And the reason was that if the Jews had had the power to execute Jesus, they would have carried out that execution by stoning him. And that was not God's plan for Jesus' death. He was to be crucified. The very means of execution carried out only by the Romans at that time. The third component we called the fulfilled prophecy. In other words, Jesus had prophesied himself more than once that he would die by crucifixion. One example we looked at last week was John chapter 12, verses 32 to 33. I'll read it again. Christ said, if I am lifted up from the earth, that's crucifixion language, I will draw all men to myself. Then verse 33 says, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So, God was truly sovereign over Jesus' unjust and unfair trials, and he was sovereign over the very manner of death that Jesus was to die. So, as I said, today we will move on to the second phase of the trial before Pilate, number two, Pilate's interaction with Jesus. And this phase breaks down as well. In this second phase, Jesus provides two very important clarifications to Pilate and clarifications for us as well. Here's the first one, number one, the nature of his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom. Now, these religious leaders had tried their best to turn the situation into a political one. So, Pilate would go along with them. It was for Pilate's sake. And we saw that last week as well. And I read this verse from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 2. The Jews were saying things like this. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, that last part was true. Jesus had claimed that. He had claimed to be the promised Messiah. And in Jewish expectation, the Davidic Messiah, the Messiah was of the line of David, and he was, therefore, the promised king of Israel. But those other claims were outright lies. Jesus had done nothing to try to mislead uh, the nation of Israel into rebellion against the Roman Empire. And when it came to paying taxes, Jesus had actually taught them the opposite of what he was being accused of. Luke chapter 20, verse 25, he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, which means pay your taxes, and to God the things that are God's. But that was not the only charge or two that the Jews tried to make against Jesus in order to sway the Roman government system. The Gospel of Mark tells us that there was another issue that they brought to the table 
that these religious leaders tried to use to make a case against Jesus. We find that in Mark chapter 14, verses 57 to 58. Here's the issue. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against Jesus, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now, the reason the Jews threw that on the table and they tried that approach was that at that time in history, the desecration of a building like a temple was almost universally viewed as a crime. And it was a crime that at times would be punishable by death. So they made all these false charges, trying their best to portray Christ as a revolutionary, someone who was, who was determined just to overthrow Roman rule and one who was determined to establish and set up his own kingdom. At this point then, Pilate went back inside his headquarters to Jesus, where Jesus was, to pursue the matter directly. And that brings us to our passage today, verse 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again the praetorium, that's the headquarters, and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this question is reported in all four gospels, and it seems very likely that Pilate asked it in a very contemptuous manner. In fact, the emphasis in the Greek language is on the pronoun you, the way it's constructed. It is literally, you are the king of the Jews? In other words, Pilate was skeptical. After all, if you just consider all this from a human perspective, Jesus certainly did not look like a king at all. And if he was a king, where were all his throngs of followers? And if he was a king, where was his army? In effect, Pilate's question was asking Jesus whether he himself was pleading guilty or not guilty to the charge of being a genuine political threat to the Roman imperial power. But Jesus could not answer Pilate's question just with an unqualified yes or no without also defining exactly what his kingdom entails. So it prompted a counter question. It's like the tables have turned. Suddenly the prisoner is interrogating uh, Pilate. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Now Jesus was not evading Pilate's question, though it might look like it. Instead, he wanted Pilate to go ahead and say the perspective from which he was asking his question. For example, on one hand, Pilate may have just misunderstood something or he may have just been curious about whether Jesus thought he was setting up some kind of worldly kingdom that would be opposed to Rome. If that was the case, then the answer would be a simple no. No, I'm not doing that because Jesus was not seeking to be a rival To Pilate in Judea, he was not seeking to be a military leader. He was not seeking to be a political leader at all. But on the other hand, if the question was actually coming from the Jewish perspective that Jesus had promised uh, that he was the long-awaited Messiah, then the answer must be yes. Pilate's response was rather indignant to what Jesus asked him, even condescending, verse 35. 
Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? I mean, Pilate wanted to make it very clear he was not interested in all the Jewish religious matters and all the intricacies of their religion. He didn't care about that at all. All he cared about were the issues that affected his own kingdom, the issues that would affect the sovereign rule of Caesar. So he elaborates a bit further in verse 35. Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. Now, we know that ultimately it was the Sanhedrin, the the ruling body over Judaism, that sent Jesus to Pilate. But notice that Pilate just singled out one entity out of the Sanhedrin, the chief priest. And that was because they were the predominant voice of that ruling body. So they sort of summarized the perspective of the Sanhedrin. And he used the verb delivered that had an edge to it. It's a verb that has the nuance of betrayal or or turning over somebody to somebody else, betraying somebody. So obviously, by using this language and by asking this, Pilate was clearly not satisfied with what the Sanhedrin was doing. He was not satisfied with the charges they brought against Jesus or how they were handling anything. He knew they didn't care about Rome. He knew that the religious leaders had been looking out for their own interests in some way. And that was the reason for Pilate's further question in verse 35. He looks at Jesus and says, what have you done? Now, with that question, Pilate is pretty much cutting to the chase, getting into the bottom line, as we'd say. And it's sort of the idea of this. He's saying, come on, really, forget all them. What have you done? And why do they hate you so much? So even though Pilate didn't understand everything, not everything about the case, he did know that when it came to those Jewish religious leaders, that there were ill motives behind what they were trying to do. And Matthew's account of all this adds this note of commentary in Matthew 27, 18. It says that Pilate knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. Envy. Jealousy mixed with anger at Jesus. So yes, Pilate knew better than just to trust the Jewish religious leaders and to rubber stamp what they were asking. But he still did not understand what exactly Jesus had done to promote that level of hostility from them. And therefore, he was was wondering, genuinely, if Jesus had committed some crime, what is it? What actual crime did you commit? Because that's what's needed to prosecute someone. And that prompted this very important exchange between Jesus and Pilate that sheds light now, clarification on the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now, Jesus accomplishes a couple of things with that. First of all, he does clearly confirm that he is a king and that he does have a kingdom. But second, he does go on to clarify the nature of that kingdom. 
The Greek term for kingdom carries a nuance of of a rule or a reign, a kingly reign, but it's not the word that would refer to a kingdom that had a particular uh, territory or boundary or location, earthly territory. Therefore, Pilate in Rome really did not have to be concerned about Jesus when it came to him being a threat against their empire. There is no earthly territory that Jesus was claiming to rule over. There was no particular nation he was claiming to rule over to be his kingdom, for he said his kingdom is not of this world. And that makes sense, because if Jesus had been an earthly king, he would have rallied all of his followers into an army. They would have prevented him from being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few hours before all this. But if you think back to that scene, that arrest went fairly simply. He was arrested very easily. Peter did try to intervene there just impulsively and cut off a man's ear with a sword, a dagger, but Jesus stopped him, went willingly. That verified his kingdom is certainly not like Pilate's. It's a kingdom of an entirely different order. So on one hand, yes, he was a king, but he's not a political ruler not someone who was trying to challenge Rome's rule. Now, if you look at the end of verse 36, he said it another way, not of this realm, not of this realm. That essentially says the same thing. This realm, this world is, was created by God, and we know that according to God's Word, Scripture, that God the Father created this realm, this world, through the agency of the eternal Son. But ever since the first human being sinned, this realm, this world has been in persistent rebellion against its creator. And that's why this kingdom, this world is called the sphere of darkness, the sphere of rebellion, the realm of blindness, spiritual blindness, the realm of sin. But since Jesus' kingdom finds its origin somewhere else, It's therefore not extended by worldly methods and ways. It's not defended by worldly ways. Jesus' kingdom spreads when he captures individual hearts, the hearts of those who are his sheep that the Father had given to the Son. So this kingdom is very active in the world today. It was active at that time. It's active today, but it is spiritually active, not politically active or in a military fashion. Though, I should say, one day, according to Scripture, Jesus will indeed return in power and glory to physically reign on the earth at that time in millennial glory. So again, Pilate had nothing to worry about. He did not have to be concerned that Rome's political interests or their military interests were in jeopardy from Jesus. The two kingdoms are totally separate. Second clarification, number two, the nature of his kingship. The nature of his kingship. That means his rule, how he rules in his kingdom, his reign in his spiritual kingdom. Now, obviously, Pilate's not getting all this. He's somewhat confused, just like many are confused about all this today still. So he sought even more information, more clarification. Verse 37, therefore, Pilate said to him, so 
You are a king. Once again, in the Greek text, there is emphasis on the pronoun you. You are a king. He's still not getting it. Jesus didn't look like a king. Not the kind King, king Pilate was accustomed to, at least. And again, many people today think in a similar way about Jesus. He's a good man. He has some good teachings. He's a good example to follow, a good example to learn from, but he's not really someone to be a king over their lives. He's not really someone to submit to and follow as their king. So Jesus did clarify how he exercises, was exercising his kingship. Verse 37 again, Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. Let's stop there for a moment. Those phrases, born, have come into the world, they confirm that Jesus preexisted before coming to earth. He's the eternal son, the eternal second member of the Godhead. He preexisted, so he was born. He came into the world, this realm, and it therefore confirms the incarnation the Son of God, taking on human nature and a human body. But all of this also adds more emphasis to the fact that his rule in his kingdom is like no other. He did not have an earthly origin. Pilate did, but not Jesus. Jesus came from heaven to earth, and that means he reigns with a different kind of authority. He reigns with heavenly authority. And then Jesus added something that is so crucial to understand how he reigns in his kingdom. It has to do with why he came into the world. Verse 37, he came to testify to the truth. That's significant, so important. Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom of truth. The kingdom of the world is the kingdom of error. It's the kingdom of lies, of falsehood. And his own kingly rule is fleshed out most significantly through testifying to the truth. That is a way to capture in one phrase everything about his mission. Everything he was here to do falls under that head right there, the idea, I brought truth. And in this context, truth is understood in more than some uh, sort of merely technical facts kind of way that are comprehended in a merely intellectual sense. It's not that. It's the truth about God himself, the truth that God wanted us to know, the truth about God's ways, at least what God wants us to know about his ways. He disclosed that truth to mankind in his son who is himself the truth. Familiar words to us, John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. That's who he is and the life. No man, no one, no person comes to the Father but through me. That's why he taught in Matthew 7, it's a narrow way. Few there are relatively that find it. Broad is the way to destruction. And revealing the truth of God the truth of salvation, the truth of sin, the truth of judgment is the way Jesus makes subjects of his kingdom. 
Also, Jesus says something else, that all those then who do belong to him, that are citizens of his kingdom, he says in verse 37 that they are the ones who listen to the truth. Verse 37, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In other words, hears the truth. Now, we found a similar idea back in John chapter 10 in that great chapter about Jesus identifying himself as the good shepherd. He says in verse 27 of John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It all goes together. Hearing Christ is not some sort of mystical thing in the middle of the night. It's connected to actually following Christ. The hearing includes believing, but it also includes obeying what is heard. Those who are citizens of his kingdom, his true sheep, are the ones who hear the truth. They recognize it, they believe it, they're committed to it, and they seek to live in light of it. Listen to what we learned way back in John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Christ said, everyone who does evil hates the light. In other words, those who are kingdom of citizens of the kingdom of the world hate the idea, this kingdom of light. They don't like the light because their deeds are evil. And he goes on to say they do not come to the light because of fear that their deeds will be exposed. The truth does that. Verse 21, John 3, and he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There again, to hear the truth is to believe the truth, to practice the truth. John 8 says something again like this, verses 31 and 32. Jesus himself said, if you continue in my word, the truth, then you are truly my disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And this is still the issue today. What people do with the truth determines their eternal destiny and nothing else. Well, at this point, Pilate decides to very abruptly just terminate this interrogation with a question that is terse, a question that is cynical, and a question that has hovered over every generation that has come. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? That retort proved something about Pilate. He didn't hear the voice of Jesus. It proved that he's not one of those given from the Father to the Son. He was not hearing, not obeying. And therefore, he illustrates all the skeptics throughout all the ages of human history, including contemporary postmodernists today. Just like many through history, many today as well, Pilate did not believe that you can know truth. So he abruptly then turns away, verse 38. And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews outside and said to them, here's his verdict, I find no guilt in him. As governor, he had the authority to go either way. He had the complete authority to pronounce Jesus guilty and to condemning to a death sentence. Problem was, he knew that Jesus was actually innocent. Now, here's something else that happened 
Interesting commentary from Matthew's gospel. Pilate is hearing all this. He, he's concluding correctly. No crime has been committed, but there was something else that happened that pushed Pilate over the edge to not condemn Jesus. Do you know what it was? The phone in his pocket binged. There was a text from his wife. We find it in Matthew 27, verse 19. And it really is a text message because we find it in the text, right? Matthew 27, verse 19. Whatever. While he, Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message, bing, saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. She had a nightmare. There's something about this man. Stay away from him. Don't deal with this. Well, whatever the motives were in Pilate's heart, we can't know completely. But the bottom line is that the scheme of the Jews, based on all the lies, based on all the preparation, based on all the plans, based on all the manipulation, failed, did not work. Pilate, with those words, basically acquitted Jesus of the charges against him. It's not the end of the story, though, is it? In a couple of weeks, not next Sunday, but in a couple of weeks, we're going to see what vacillating Pilate did next, even though he knew Jesus was innocent. But let's summarize some things. No doubt, a summary point made in this whole passage about the trial is that there are, again, as I said at the beginning, two kingdoms. Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders, religious doesn't matter. Pilate and religious leaders were representing the kingdom of this world. Christ represents the kingdom of God. And I'll say it again, there are only two kingdoms. Every person is a citizen of one or the other. There is no middle ground. There is no third choice. But here's a related summary point from our passage. If a person is a member, a citizen of Christ's kingdom, then it will be evidenced in something. It will be evidenced in their belief in and their commitment to and obedience to the truth. It is that person who is a genuine follower of Christ. It is that person who knows eternal life, which includes abundant life now and hope and joy, even in the midst of the most difficult trials, and it includes life everlasting in heaven when they die, that person. On the other hand, the person who is a member of the kingdom of the world is the one who, at the end of the day, rejects or even tries to redefine truth. And that person has no way of knowing forgiveness of their sin, no way of knowing true purpose and hope and freedom here in this life. Plus, when they die, they will only know everlasting judgment and separation from God. The Bible takes this pretty seriously. The reality that there's only two kingdoms, and therefore it takes truth seriously. 
which is one reason why Scripture consistently warns against the kingdom of the world. One very familiar one is 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It doesn't mean that we don't love the things that God does in our lives and through us in this world. It doesn't mean that we're not grateful for the many blessings we get to enjoy. It doesn't mean that we don't have responsibilities that we're required to fulfill while we're here. But that's something different than loving the world, loving the views of the world, loving the way the world tries to redefine truth, loving the world's opinions and perspectives. That person, the love of the Father is not in him. There's another way then to look at this encounter between Pilate and Jesus. It was not only a conflict between two kingdoms or an encounter between two kingdoms. Inherent in that is the fact that it was also an encounter between two radically different value systems. And that's confirmed in that question, what is truth? Your view of truth determines your value system. And at the center of the world's value system is the way of thinking, if you just want to put it in a word, a way of thinking called relativism. Relativism. Relativism is the, no- relativism is the notion that reality and truth are just the result of human constructs. Reality and truth are simply the result of human and cultural interpretations. And therefore, reality and truth are subjective. More practically, relativism says this, what you define as truth might be true for you, but it isn't true for me. That assumes that either there is more than one truth or there is no truth at all. It is this relativism that characterizes the postmodern world in which we live which means that what we call this culture today is not really a new phenomenon. Pilate was an early postmodernist. Postmodern relativism is as old as unbelief is. And that same question, what is truth, that's been hovering over every generation is what has given rise to all the contemporary debates that are going on today. Let's just look at some examples. This ideology, what is truth, is clearly evidenced in the debates surrounding the topic of both abortion and human sexuality. It is ultimately the view of what truth is that frames those debated questions and all the attendant questions like, what is a baby? What is a woman? Some can't answer that because they haven't dealt with that other question, what is truth? What's a child? More specifically, take abortion for a moment. Here's a quote from one of the past presidents of Planned Parenthood. He emphasized this, quote, emotional, moral, and religious concepts must be separated from abortion. It's another way of saying truth must be separated from discussions about abortion. Truth is like Genesis 1, the creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Truths like Psalm 139, verse 16, where the psalmist writes that he knew 
the psalmist's unformed substance from the very beginning, knew him and had determined even his days. Truth must be separated from the discussions. And the result then is therefore those who support it are just examples of living by a cousin of relativism, and that is situational ethics. The ethics depend on the situation, and how you define truth depends on the situation. The terms you'll use depends on the situation that you're in. If the unborn baby is not wanted by the mother or the parents, then they're dealing with that question, what is truth? How are they going to answer it? Those who don't want the baby, then answer it by rebranding the baby. That's just a bunch of sales. On the other hand, if the child is wanted by the mother or the parents, it's interesting, this is true of unbelievers as well, how conveniently it is and how often they now refer to that being that's growing into the, in the womb, they refer to it differently now, my baby. Only because of the situation where they want it or not. What is truth? For the world, the kingdom of the world is determined by the situation because everything is relative. This strikes at the heart of relativism, relativism, where the truth is dependent on the situation. Take the controversy, controversy over gender, it's no different. Proponents of so-called gender ideology have come to teach and to counsel children and even to seek legislation, influencing people to question their biology. That ideology tells children that there's no limit to how you can identify yourself, no limit at all. There's no limit to how you identify yourself when it comes to a choice of gender. There's just no limit. I mean, whatever aligns with you and your so-called true self, it's up to you. Why are they doing that? Because they haven't dealt with the answer to the question, what is truth? They're still asking Pilate's question. For those pushing gender ideology, it's just dressed up differently than the abortion proponents. But it's the same issue. When all is said and done, though, only God's truth will endure. Because in the end, the truth isn't just a concept. It is a person, Jesus. And Jesus himself outlasts every social trend, every ideological fad that comes along. He doesn't change. Therefore, we can be assured that the truth still today can set people free from all of that. Even though they are being fed lies on every side by the kingdom of the world. Of course, we know from Scripture that this truth is not something that's discovered by human effort. It's not discovered by... um, human works. It's not found in some sort of human constructs. It's not like some new theory of men that come along all the time. What did Jesus say in our passage? He made it very clear. Truth is something that is revealed. He said he came to testify to the truth. He came to reveal it. He has the truth because he is the truth, and he reveals the truth, and he does it by his spirit and by the Word of God, Scripture, and He does that to the hearts of those who are His sheep. So it is truth that Christians have to offer to this world. That's it. That's what we offer. 
I don't offer anything else to anybody except truth. And it is truth that we must be willing to take a stand on, to stake our lives on. I'm not going to stake my life on other things, but I will on the truth of Scripture. It's what our world needs. It's what people all around us are hungering for, whether they know it or not. It is what they're hungering for. The very truth that we as Christ's true followers believe. So we are to know the truth. We're to live our lives in light of the truth. We're to proclaim the truth because our Savior, our Master, is the truth. And those who receive the truth in faith are saved by Jesus. And all those who reject the truth, His truth in this life, are going to be exposed by that same truth someday in judgment. The bottom line is you cannot afford to ignore Jesus' kingdom, and you cannot afford to ignore his kingship, his rule. He put it very clearly and bluntly this way in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We don't have to fear, though. Because that's the good news of the gospel. It's this, that even though we are sinners through and through, because of who Christ is and what he did, if someone will turn, which means to repent, to turn from trusting in self and trusting in the kingdom of this world and trusting in the perspectives of this world and trusting in the opinions of this world, turn and reject that and turn instead and entrust themselves totally to Christ trusting Him alone as their Lord and Savior. He is a marvelous Savior. He forgives your sin. He cleanses you from your sin. He gives you new hope and new purpose, and you spend the rest of your life following Him, learning more and more what it means that He's the King of your life. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that You are a saving God and that You're the God of truth. And that truth is timeless. It's not dependent upon situations. The truth about what a human being is, is timeless. The truth about gender is timeless, all the way back to creation. But our world is so blind, so caught up in its own theories and blindness and sin and rebellion that it cannot see the truth. But Lord, even today, You are revealing truth to people. You're opening their hearts. And so I pray for anyone here who's never come to that place of entrusting themselves, turning from trusting the world and the world's way, but entrusting Christ alone as their Lord and Savior to follow him. I pray you would open their hearts to believe the truth today. In our Savior's name, amen.